from the Partnership for Public Service. This is Profiles in Public Service. A podcast that tells the stories of the public servants responsible for our government's most significant achievements. I'm Lauren DeYoung Shulman. And I'm Rachel Klein-Kircher. We have something different for this episode of Profiles in Public Service. To celebrate Public Service Recognition Week, the partnership hosted four national security experts for a special panel discussion on rebuilding our democratic institutions. We're going to hear that discussion today. The partnership was joined by Dr. Fiona Hill, former Deputy Assistant to the President and Senior Director for European and Russian Affairs on the National Security Council. She's currently the Robert Bosch Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution's Center on the United States and Europe. William B. Taylor, former Ambassador to Ukraine, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, former Director for European Affairs for the National Security Council, and Marie Yovanovitch, former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine. You're going to hear from these four leaders about the importance of public service and spreading awareness of what public service means and how we can all play a part in strengthening our democracy. The conversation was moderated by James Homan, an opinion columnist for The Washington Post. We'll share our thoughts about this conversation at the end of the episode. Thank you to all four of our panelists. It's not just public servants that we have here with us, we have real patriots, people who have really heroically and courageously served our country. And uh, and and I, I wanna start and open it up to all four of you. You know, you obviously have each spent quite a lot of time in public service, uh, but your most recent tenures in government didn't necessarily end great. Uh, you know, some of you were more grievously mistreated than others, but you're still here today to talk to everyone about why they should go into public service. For young people watching, what do you say to them for why they should go into government or public service despite all of that? And I guess we can start with uh, Ambassador Yovanovitch. First of all, thanks for, um, uh, for hosting us today. Uh, I think that um, public service is just such a, a privilege. And uh, I worked for the U.S. government, for the State Department for about 33 years. And, um, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I continue to believe that when you are working uh, for your fellow Americans, you are working for something bigger and better than yourself. And it brings meaning to your life. You do important things every day and you can make a difference. Um, I think that sense of mission is something that um, I hope that we can give to young people today as they think about what their uh, future careers might be. Um, you know, I think of JFK asking, you know, think not what uh, your country will do for you, think what you can do for your country. I think of the moonshot. I think of all those volunteers after 9-11 to defend our country. There are many important tasks whether it is uh, curing the uh, coronavirus, coming up with vaccines and so forth, whether it is um, serving in uh, national security jobs, whether it is something else. And our country needs everybody that's out there. Ambassador Taylor. So again, thank you. It's an honor to be here with, with, uh, with these colleagues, these, these brave colleagues. Um, um, Ambassador Yovanovitch is exactly right. Um, uh, what we get to do um, uh, as public servants um, is uh, is to serve serve the American people. Uh, the president just said, "We the people." This is an important concept for us to to keep in mind, and I think it's an inspiring concept. I mean, uh, the the president said that uh, uh, this makes the country better. This makes us all better. It uh, it's a it's a public service. It's a public good, and I know that uh, 
that's that's the, the nature of uh, of Max's organization here, public good. Um, so it is uh, it, it's important for us to demonstrate that. It's important for us to uh, reflect the values um, that that uh, that make this country great and make make this country uh, work well for its people. Fiona, do you want to? I was also going to say that we really need younger people, particularly people who know how to use a mute button, to think about uh, <laughs> national uh, national service, because um, uh, um, you know uh, James and uh, Alex and uh, you know Max aside, I can see that you know Masha and Bill and I have let our natural grey come through, and you know one of um, the issues about public service, you know these days, it has started to be seen by people, and this is what Max's um, public uh, you know partnership is trying to get over as kind of the bastion of older people who have kind of, you know, in the case of both Bill and Alex, been military veterans who kind of have come in after other kinds of service into public service to give something back since that sense of mission. But in actual fact, when, you know, President Biden, you know, talks about the country coming back, everyone has a part to play. It's kind of Americans are coming back. We the people is not just we the people of a certain age or a certain background, it's we the people and across all of the generations, across the entire geography of America, who are looking for a way to give back to our community, but also to build our communities. And public service comes in so many different forms, but it's a general spirit. And we really need all generations, people of all kinds of backgrounds to pull together to move the country forward. And so one of the things that you know I hope that we'll be able to get out of this discussion and as Max and his colleagues try to get more people interested in government services, thinking of all the different forms and thinking for younger people out of school, out of community college, out of university, or all of the different things that they might think of themselves doing about how they could take part in this at the community level, the local government level, and at the federal government level. Because we need more young people to step up, to mentor people like us and show us how to use our computers, uh, but also you know, kind of come up with fresh ideas about how we can move the country forward. And that's kind of one of the purposes of this week, of National Public Service Week, is to think about how everyone could play a role in this. Colonel Vindman. Thanks, James, uh, for, uh, for moderating. And Max, uh, thank you and the Partnership for Public Service for hosting this, uh, this conversation. Uh, yesterday, I sat in on a conversation, um, you know, a coffee table talk with the School of uh, um, Foreign Service at uh, Georgetown. And one of the more interesting and difficult questions was, uh, I don't know if I fully, uh, from a student uh, that's that's approaching the end of their uh, academic life and entering, um, you know, starting to consider work and potentially entering government, and and she asked, "What do you think about uh, joining government if your if my views do not fully align with those in government? Is it you know is it are there uh, what kind of role can I fill?" And it was a tough question. I had to think about it briefly, but I thought the key element is. If you uh, share a common set of values, and I think most public servants do share a common set of values, uh, you want to give back, you want to serve something bigger than yourself, you want to contribute to uh, the betterment of uh, the nation, uh, you it's an almost an obligation to uh, consider some sort of public service. That could be in local government uh, with the millions of people that Max mentioned earlier, uh, that could be in federal government, uh, but it's one of the few things that you could do that's that serves something other than your own personal interests. And in serving something other than your own personal interests, you actually, in fact, better yourself. You become maybe the optimal version of yourself because you strive to to meet those kind of ethical uh, and moral obligations, personal and institutional, 
And um, I know that, you know, this group of folks that uh, operated honorably, uh, you know, outside of the limelight is now under even greater pressure to, to contribute in the same way, uh, uphold the kind of the highest um, standards of ethics and values and advocate for public service because it is the ultimate check. Um, but the good people inside the organization are what kept this, admin, this the administration under the last admin, uh, uh, presidency uh, from sinking, you know, kept the ship, the ship afloat. Uh, <laughs> if it wasn't for that enormous cohort of excellent public servants that whether, whether they testified in impeachment or served quietly within their de departments and agencies, we could have ended up in a much, much worse place um, so I encourage good people to consider uh, public service for that reason. Thank you. I'd love to get everyone's perspective on sort of the fragility versus the durability of our institutions and our government. Uh, you know, in, in some ways, January 6th highlighted how fragile democracy can be. In other ways, we've endured. We did have a transfer of power. Uh, you know. We did have hearings to examine uh, what happened uh, in Kiev and, and elsewhere in the White House. Uh, so what is your perspective about sort of the, the state of American democracy and our institutions? How strong are they or weak are they or where in between? And, and how are you kind of positive about the outcome or does it give you pause or, or both? And I guess we can again start with Ambassador Yovanovitch. Thank you. Um, I mean, I think this is perhaps the most important question we're facing as a nation right now. And I think, again, you know, as all of my um, you know, friends and colleagues have said, it's going to take all of us to come together and, and figure this out. I was, you know, an American um, who thought that our democracy was strong and enduring and forever. And um, frankly, uh, I had this arrogant view that it didn't require much work on our part to keep things going. Uh, that we had, you know, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, et cetera, our strong institutions that we always talk about. And I think what we've discovered is that over the years, not just the last administration, but over the years, there's been an erosion. And we have not been the guardians of our institutions, because at the end of the day, the Constitution, as beautiful as it is, it's a piece of paper. And our beautiful buildings in Washington and in state capitals around the country are, are just buildings. Um, it takes us, um, you know, going back to what I think Max said, that you need people uh, to um, work uh, in the public good, to, um, uh, you know, provide services, to uh, defend our nation, to advance our interests. And um, we need to uh, really, I think, take a hard look at ourselves, uh, take a hard look at America and figure out how we can revitalize that and how we can come together. And I, um, I thank you for asking the question because I think it is um, a, a really important one. Um, but the issue of how fragile our democracy is, um, I think we've, we've discovered that it can be fragile, fragile. But when I look at January 6th, when I look at some of the other challenges that we faced in the last couple of years, in the end, we've come out okay. But I think these are wake-up calls that we need to be working together to make sure we don't go to that brink, to make sure that we are strengthening our institutions, strengthening our schools, and um, leading the next generation with a stronger America. And that means 
a stronger democracy. Ambassador Taylor. So Ambassador Yamanis just talked about um, the importance of institutions um, in this. And, and going back, James, to the other example that you use, that is kind of the, you know, what happened in Kiev and, and we were all part of that, as you, as you say. Um, I think that was a challenge to institutions. Um, and the institution, the specific institution I'm talking about here is the, is the institution in, in the United States that forms and executes foreign policy. And it's, and it's a broad set of organizations and people, you know, it's, yeah, it's the State Department, it's the embassy in Kiev, um, it's the uh, Defense Department, um, it's the National Security Council, it's the Congress, but it's, it's broader too. It's the, uh, you know, editorial boards and uh, citizen, you know, world affairs councils and this, and that institution that formulates and then executes foreign <laughs> policy um, works because people trust each other within, certainly within government organizations, and there's some transparency um, that allows people to see what's going on, again, within and also from the outside to see what's going on in that institution. And the challenge of a, of a year ago of, in, in 2019 was that that uh, transparency was not there and the trust was not there. And there was, you know, I, I talk about the regular channel of this institution that is, you know, the embassy through the State Department, through the National Security Council, reporting to Fiona and, uh, and with uh, Alex there, we're, you know, that's the, that, that kind of chain of command, you know, um, is the regular channel. And there was an irregular channel and the irregular channel challenged that institution. And the, and the institution prevailed, as, as Ambassador Imam has just said. Um, uh, we came through it. It was, you know, <laughs> I don't think it was a close-run thing. I think, it, uh, but, but, you know, it took some extraordinary actions by some people and some bravery, real bravery uh, by some people to stand up and, and, uh, and point out uh, the problem. So, uh, so, so I'm optimistic. I think that institution came through, and I think uh, other institutions will be the same way. Um, but uh, as 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 Ambassador Yamada said, it takes work. Um, we need we need to work hard. Fiona. Yeah, I think one of the things is the way that we think about these institutions, and you know, Max and you know the the Partnership for Public Service is all about the public element of this. This is not called the Partnership for Private Service. So it's the kind of like the privatization of our of our public policy is the problem that you know kind of these whole systems and institutions exist to counteract. The founding fathers were very concerned about this because what was America um, the result of? It was a result of a revolution against a tyrannical, um, you know, overseas leader who, you know, the king at the time was all about his own private power, his own private influence, his own private wealth. I mean, the, okay, the United Kingdom was sort of a constitutional monarchy, but there wasn't a lot of checks and balances on the, the, the writ of the king. And that was what the whole American Revolution was about and the building up of institutions. And George Washington didn't set out to be another tyrant and he didn't set out to privatize everything. All of his addresses, the farewell address, all of the institutions that were created were to stop that privatization of the public good, be it on the domestic side, on the financial side, and in foreign policy. And what we were seeing over the last several years, and as, as Masha says, this is 
you know, kind of a long tail. It's not just the last four years. It's been building up over time as we've had more private money uh, getting into influence our politics, more private interests coming in. And then there's a, after that, there's kind of a, an obvious slip into the privatization of every single aspect. And then people will talk about the fact that our bureaucracy, the people who work in public service are not elected. Shouldn't everyone be elected? Isn't that the ethos of democracy? Well, actually, no. Um, and, and if you start to take that to its most ridiculous extremes, do we elect our airline pilots? Do we elect our firefighters? We might elect the fire chief. We might elect, you know, kind of somebody who might oversee this, but we want the people to be skilled. We want to know when we get in a plane that we're being flown by people who have not just been elected and deputized from the tarmac to come on and fly the plane but people have actually trained for a long time to actually do this we'd like our firefighters who are coming to rescue us to know what they're doing not that they've just been deputized from the street and this is the whole point so why do we have public servants at all kinds of levels postal workers people in the military again we'd like them to be trained we want them to actually have the expertise to be able to run the institutions that we are part of you don't go to a hospital and just have someone who's been elected off the street to do your surgery. That's the whole way that we need to think about this. So these institutions have been built up to bring something forward for the public, for all of us who live in the, the country. So we just have to have the right frame of mind, which we're thinking about this, to figure out how these work. And of course, we wouldn't want them to be privatized in the sense that then, you know, we're kind of choosing people to do something sensitive, just you know, kind of a, the day before, or that somebody's doing it for their own private purposes and not uh, for the benefit of all of us. Absolutely. Colonel? Yes. I think we came through a very, very difficult uh, period, maybe in certain ways an unprecedentedly difficult period recently. And the effects of that are going to be long lasting, both within the public service work workforce with regards to U.S. standing uh, in the world. Um, <clears throat> clearly, the abuses uh, of the last administration in certain ways, at least with regards to, to the majority of the population, uh, poisoned the well on uh, a public service and uh, the effective uh, good governance. And it's going to take some time to, uh, to un undo some of that damage. And one of the silver linings of, of the, uh, at least our role, this group that you have in, uh, here that you uh, welcomed here, is that we could we we had the privilege to show uh, at least my colleagues did to show some, the excellence of public service, the excellence of public servants that uh, you know uh, were brilliant, um, professional, poised, and uh, in a lot of ways you know exemplified the very best of, of what we'd want our public servants to do. Uh, so that that was a, a silver lining. And, and in, in my mind, there's probably uh, this, you know, I tend to look at the world uh, a little uh, as an optimist. So I, I see uh, uh, still a durable institution, but it requires a lot of work to both undo the damage from the previous administration. That's probably through accountability. Uh, we don't we have not had a full accounting of all the abuses of the of the of the key leadership in the previous administration that needs to happen within various departments and agencies. Some of the stories are well established with regards to um, the harm brought on to the Justice Department, the intelligence community, um, State Department, defense, uh, all of the institutions that we represent here. So that needs to happen. Um, but I think we we can do that work and uh, can kind of rebuild, uh, build back better. Uh, I also kind of take a take a view, uh, uh, maybe a bit of a historical view that we've been through very, very difficult times. Uh, the Civil War, 
uh, Great Depression, two world wars, the civil rights uh, movement. These were extremely challenging and polarizing uh, moments in, in US history. And uh, this will, in, in the kind of the breadth of history, will we'll end up joining that list, but be one of many challenges that the United States overcomes. And uh, we ideally will make sure that we harden our institutions against uh, the range of abuse. It's hard to do that against the president. I don't think our, any, our system was designed in any way to protect against abuse, uh, the abuse of the chief executive, but certainly we could make a lot of headway below that level with abuse uh, you know, within departments and agencies. And, and maybe that's the easier starting point. Uh, and then chip away at, at the polarization that has kind of, um, you know, that took uh, brought us to, to the tipping point. Uh, thank you. Yeah, you, you, the, the last part of your answer sort of got it what I wanted to ask next, which is, uh, you know, I think you all had great answers and sort of established in broad strokes the need for the in the importance of these institutions. Uh, looking back on the last couple of years, and, and that a lot of it predated the previous administration, but I was wondering what kinds of reforms or changes, uh, either to the civil service, uh, you know, we, we you, Fiona was talking about, you know, obviously the privatization, I think we saw with someone like Gordon Sundland, the problem of, of you know, putting donors in some of those vital ambassador roles. Uh, obviously, there are, to Colonel Vindman's point on, you know, Rudy Giuliani's under active investigation for violating FARA with, uh, you know, trying to oust Ambassador Yovanovitch. But what are there specific reforms that you believe would strengthen our institutions that we should be talking about uh, or that, you know, that, that kind of in, in, a, in a specific way would help prevent what happened to you all from happening again, but also would make our institutions function better? Or is it just having the, the right people in these leadership positions? I guess we can start with Ambassador Yovanovitch again. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Um, a, a group of uh, academics and former diplomats uh, put together a report called um, "U.S. Diplomacy Serve a U.S. Diplomacy Service for the 21st Century," um, sponsored by Harvard and Georgetown University. And um, it really it sets out, I think, about 12 um, broad areas that we need to focus on. And I won't. I, I won't go into them here. I mean, people can read the report, but there's a, a lot of um, a lot of good things in in there. A lot of important uh, issues that are raised and that merit, I think, a lot of consideration. And it was uh, specifically produced for whichever candidate became president, um, Republican or Democrat. And and I think that's important because our institutions, as have have has been said in one way or another by everybody on this panel. Uh, need to be nonpartisan. Uh, we need a continuity of government. We need expertise, as Fiona was saying. Um, and that is true in, you know, I mean, just in my wheelhouse, the State Department, National Security Service, that sort of thing. Um, that is true there as, as well. Um, I, I'd like to just stress one um, thing that uh, at the State Department, we're called the Foreign Service. And you know that I think immediately makes people think that somehow we're foreigners or we are advocating for foreign interests or something like that. And so one of the ideas, uh, which I actually think is a good one, is to think about changing, uh, changing that name. And I think also so socializing more what it is that we do for America, because you know ideally nobody in America would know my name. Um, that's not the case anymore. 
but ideally, uh, you know, we, we work under the radar and what we do is what um, Secretary Schultz used to call um, tending the garden. You know, every day we uh, work on relationships and we nurture those flowers and we pull up the nasty weeds that get in, 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 in there and choke off good relationships and create bad relationships. And so that we never get to a point where there, you know, ideally, of course, where there are wars or other, uh, other, uh, other problems. That's what we should be doing all the time. And, um, and that's not glamorous work. It's not uh, the, the sort of thing that captures the imagination or captures headlines, but it is absolutely critical to keeping America secure and strong and advancing our interests. Um, and so, you know, I, um, one of the things that I think about, uh, and this has been um, really spurred by the thousands of, of letters that I've received over, um, over uh, you know, the last couple of years, and I know my colleagues have, have, have received an equal, if not more, number from, from many people. And what has struck me the most is what people have said that they didn't know about the State Department, you know, because, you know, the joke often is, which state do you work for? <laughs> they, don't, they don't know about the Foreign Service. And what does that mean exactly? And what do you do exactly? And so um, I think part of it, all, uh, part of what we need to do, in, in addition to getting our own house in order, is um, reaching out to America and uh, letting them know what it is that we do so that there is the same kind of support for diplomacy as there is for the military, for example. Because in an ideal world, um, you would never have to use the military except as sort of the standby behind diplomacy and development. So I'll, I'll go to Ambassador Schultz, but do you have it? What's, what should we call the Foreign Service instead? Do you have an, an idea or is that um, a report? I think there are a couple of ideas out there, but but definitely the word America needs to be in there. <laughs> I was going to say Team America. <laughs> yeah. oh. And we would all wear capes. Right. <laughs> Ambassador. So so James, I was, was going to ask Mustin the same thing. You know, you know, America's gardeners. I mean, you know, what, what is right. what, what, what are the names there? So so get, get some thoughts to this. Um, but James, you have, you have a good question about is it, can we tinker with the system? Can we reform the system? Are there things that we can do to make this work better? Or, and you kind of ended your question on, on this, or do we just need enlightened, smart, dedicated, um, honest people of integrity in these, in these jobs? And I'm, I'm, I'm inclined toward the latter. I'm inclined toward uh, the sense that, you know, yeah, there were some people in the previous administration that don't fall into that category that I just described. Um, <laughs> but there were some, but there were some, and some are on this on this panel actually that uh, that 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 gave themselves, that focused themselves, that dedicated themselves to to this. And 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 so a lot of a lot of all administrations are are able to to provide that kind of leadership and to, and, to, and to choose the right things and, and pursue the right policies. Uh, but I, in my view, it just comes down to uh, people, it comes, to, and so therefore it's elections, goes back, I think, to what Masa just said, you know, we the people, the people have to have to understand what their government is doing and choose people that can can do that that kind of work. So I, I think it's important for, for individuals to do that. Fiona? 
Yeah, I was going to say something similar along these lines. Um, and, you know, the Team America idea, even if the State Department doesn't get called that, um, you know, I think <laughs> it's something that we need to bear in mind. We also probably need an ambassador to America. Uh, and in fact, that's probably what Max and, you know, PPS are trying to be in any case to sort of explain to Americans. And I mean, James, you do that with the media, uh, with the Washington Post and others, you know, kind of get out there and explain to people what's happening. The, you know, um, what the State Department also does is public diplomacy in other countries to explain what America does. Well, we need to do some of that at home. I think that's part of our problem. And Max tries to do this. And in fact, I mean, if, if anybody wants to take some time looking at the um, the, the partnerships website. I mean, I've drawn upon the facts and figures that um, they have about federal service for a lot of work that I've been doing and thinking about recently, because the, the federal government's not that large. I mean, there's only a couple of million people who work for the federal government out of 330 million, and and they're all over the country. They're not just all in Washington D.C. You know, they're not just you know the public servants like us here, but they're members of the military, of course, which is you know Alex uh, and uh, and Bill have both um, served in the postal workers, national park service. You know, Max has got all of this laid out, and you know what we really need is people to understand that they can be part of that as well. Uh, now, it tends to be that if you look at Max's um, figures, uh, that a lot of the people in the federal government have a degree, a bachelor's degree or an advanced degree, because there's, de there's specialization required in a lot of the jobs. You know, if you're a, a, an agronomist at the FDA, for example, you, you know, you've mm -hmm. usually got some kind of degree. Certainly the people that um, at CDC, you know, you've got to hope, you know, have been well trained in medicine and immunology. And, you know, sometimes we had a bit of a problem with that, you know, in the last few years as well. But that's the kind of thing that people are getting specialized. But for the most part, people are like everybody else in America. And they're from all over America. This idea that they're just in the, the you know, the Virginia, Maryland, D.C. Um, area is just not correct. And again, you know, Max's um, information shows that that's the case. So it's like Bill is saying and, and, and Masha is saying as well, we need to have people see themselves reflected in this. We need some public diplomacy that Max and others are trying to do with National Public Service uh, Week to go out there like an ambassador to America and say, hey, this is all of us. This is we, the people. You can be part of this as well because we need younger people, like I said at the beginning, to come in. We need the person who's at you know, the, the local community college. And not just at the, you know, the Ivy League University, somebody who's in a, a technical specialization as an apprenticeship or has just joined the military straight, you know, out of high school to think that, you know, this is something that I could be doing a lifelong service. And, you know, this is all of us. And, you know, you can be from Utah, you can be from Iowa, you're not just going to be from Virginia, Maryland and the District of Columbia. This is something for every American to take part in. I think once we get that, then we can fix our institutions because we'll get people who think this is a shared endeavor and this is something for them as well. And Max, again, has loads of ideas about how we can fix the US government that you know, I would commend people to take a look at too. Colonel Goodman. Bill, what do you think about reinstating the draft? Uh, no, just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, I think uh, one of the things we, uh, is it's what, what we're doing here to a certain extent, um, what, what Max is doing, but on a much broader scale, evangelizing for public service. Uh, and in evangelizing for public service, uh, getting the best and the brightest to serve, uh, model what service is for the next generation of the best and brightest to, to serve. Um, but those that if that's kind of the, uh, you know, the, the conceptual level, I think there are probably a couple of practical things I'd offer uh, to be quick. One is probably whistleblower protection. 
uh, make sure that those are, are uh, you know, strong and durable. You, they might not be effective in, uh, in working again against the chief executive that, that's corrupt, but in um, probably in almost all other cases, they would be. Uh, and um, I think there's a lot of progress being made in that sphere. And then uh, I personally like the idea of um, some sort of national public service. Uh, it doesn't have to be, you know, uh, it could be mandatory. Uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be mandatory, rather. It could be something uh, practical in that, you know, in exchange for national public service, there uh, you have your college loans paid off. And my, that could be a, a sufficiently important form of encouragement, uh, like it is for, for military service, um, you know, with a GI Bill and so forth. So I think those are those are some some practical considerations. Uh, thank you. I, I have a lot of uh, questions from people who are watching, including a lot of people who are in government uh, and, and in the civil service. And I want to ask some of them. But first, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about Russia and Ukraine, since we have uh, you know four of the top experts in the West on this topic. Secretary Blinken in Ukraine this week. Uh, I just am interested in your perspective now that we have this new administration. We saw the the Russian buildup uh, in Ukraine, uh, and the, I guess the somewhat of a drawdown. But what what are what do you make of it all, and what's your perspective on the best way to counter Vladimir Putin now in this new 2021 environment? We can go around the horn again. You'd like to start, Ambassador Ivanovich. Uh, okay, um, I'll, I'll just be very brief because yeah. I think my three colleagues are following it uh, from a professional point of view and I'm just reading the newspaper. <laughs> um, I, I would just say that I think it's really important that Secretary Blinken is out uh, in Ukraine fairly early on in uh, the, the administration. I think he's sending a very clear statement uh, that there are uh, and a message uh, not only to Russia, um, on and but also to Ukraine and and also to our European and other like-minded um, countries and institutions and that is that Ukraine is in a two-front war and the first one is uh, is with Russia not only the kinetic war that you were talking about with troops uh, massing uh, on Ukrainian borders but um, but also um, you know uh, the, the cyber front the economic front I mean the list goes on of how Russia is abusing Ukraine and it's something that um, I think the U.S. is um, taking a very hard look at and um, is um, providing support for, for, for Ukraine. And then the second issue is, um, you know, what kind of a country does Ukraine become? Um, does it become a, a democracy looking to the West, a market economy uh, where, um, you know, its people will be taken care of and not, um, not living uh, in, in, in poverty? Um, or is it going to just become a, a, a satellite state uh, of, um, of Russia? And um, in order for uh, Ukraine uh, to achieve what the Ukrainian people have said several times over the last two decades, through demonstrations, through elections, um, that they want to be looking to the West, they want to be living in a democracy. And in order for that to happen, the leadership needs to take tough reforms and stick with them. And we've seen some black backsliding over the last uh, couple of years. Um, we've also seen some good steps. There need to be more good steps than, than, than backsliding. And I think um, Secretary Blinken is also passing that message from what I see in the press. Ambassador Taylor? Yeah, I agree with, uh, with Ambassador Ivanovich um, that this visit 
that Secretary of State's visit um, is, a, is a strong message. Um, by the way, he has a good team with him. You know, he got uh, some people on that, uh, on his delegation uh, that know this country. Um, I'm thinking in particular of Tori Newland, who is, uh, who is, a, who is a legend uh, in Ukraine and in Moscow. Uh, uh, and so, so people notice uh, that, that Tori uh, is there. And exactly as, as Masa says, this is, this is a strong signal. In the first instance to the Ukrainians, uh, the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian people, that the United States is supporting your fight and your defense, your, your fight against the aggression uh, from, from Russia. Um, and, and in my view, that's the first and, and frankly, the most important piece of that. And that's where the United States has a big role to play, a big role to play. Um, you know, we can, and, and not just on, on political statements, not just on uh, security assistance, but we do provide security assistance, um, very serious security assistance, and that, and that will continue. But I'm just, I was struck by uh, President Biden's Two phone calls, uh, uh, three phone calls. First, he, he calls President Zelensky, um, uh, and then shortly thereafter, he calls President Putin. And he tells President Putin three things. He says, number one, back off of Ukraine. This is about a month ago when, as you said, uh, James, there was this buildup of truth. He said, back off Ukraine. Um, uh, he was very direct. He was also direct in the second message, which was, we're going to put sanctions on you. We're going to put sanctions on you in about two days. And sure enough, two days later, there were big sanctions put on, on, and so that was a hard message, I'm sure, for Mr. Putin to hear um, in, in that phone call. But the third thing he did, uh, and I think this was this is an indication that there are a lot of ways that we can support Ukraine. Um, the third thing he did was to say, look, I'm willing to get together with you. You know, this summer or something, so we'll work, work things out. But it was clear, I'm sure to both presidents, that if Mr. Putin were to invade Ukraine, that that summit would be off. Um, or if Mr. Putin were to kill Mr. Navalny, that summit would be off. There'd be no way that uh, any president, that President Biden could meet with President. So, so there's that kind of support, as well as all of the other phone calls and indications of support, you know, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, the National Security Advisor, the Chairman Jones, all called their counterparts. Uh, and very publicly, very publicly, the Russians noticed um, that phone call helped. Uh, so I, uh, there, there, as well as I think we probably also probably uh, Fiona and, and uh, Alex's colleagues know this. Uh, uh, this drill. we encouraged Europeans to make the same kind of message, send the mm-hmm. same kind of message, and, and it's important that uh, I think it's important that uh, Mr. Putin saw all that. You know, he saw all of that, all of that response and that support um, for Ukraine. So there, there's a range of things that that we can do, and and again, that's the, and that's where we have leverage. That's where we have now. Uh, Moss is exactly right. There's this other battle that they need to fight, and that's that's a Ukrainian battle that they have to fight. Um, and we can do something, but you know, that's their that's their. The IMF has big leverage. <laughs> they've got big loans, um, and they've used that leverage. Um, um, and, and that's we, we have less. We can provide assistance, which we do. Um, uh, uh, but that's but I was, I was so glad that uh, Secretary Blinken was there uh, sending that message. Fiona. Yeah, I mean, these are all extremely important points. I'm just going to build on them um, a little bit. And I'm sure, you know, Alex will have something to say as well, because this is really all about um, Ukraine's sovereignty on the one hand and solvency on the other. Uh, And, you know, in Russia, this is depicted somehow as this is part of a longstanding Cold War-esque struggle with the United States over dividing up Europe. 
you know, uh, Putin and others have um, said in a way that they want a new Yalta, uh, meaning the um, old wartime uh, conferences, you know, where you'd have Stalin and Churchill and Roosevelt sitting together in Yalta, you know, deciding about where dividing lines were going to go down in Europe. Well, now Putin owns Yalta because that's in Crimea, which they've annexed. And we're not in that game anymore. We are not playing the old Cold War or post-World War II game. We're not interested in dividing up Europe. And, you know, that was glaringly obvious um, during the past administration. Uh, President Trump was not interested at all in engaging in these kinds of discussions. And, you know, found them, to be honest, a bit mystifying as to why Putin was fixated like this. But, you know, kind of, uh, unfortunately, Russia has continued to see Ukraine as sort of part of not just its sphere of influence, but part of its own perspective as a power inside of Europe and sees, you know, Ukraine and the tussles uh, with us as a proxy war, which it isn't at all. So that's part of our challenge is making the point that Ukraine is part of the European political, geographic and economic space and is a sovereign country, just like Poland and Hungary and the Czech Republic and the Baltic states. And that this is part of, um, you know, basically finalizing and stabilizing European security for the 21st century. And, you know, of course, then for Ukraine to be a truly sovereign country, it also has to be solvent. But as, you know, uh, Bill and you know, Masha have said, that's up to Ukraine to do it. But we have to be able to push back uh, the, Ukra uh, the Russian predation. We also have to be able to do it with our European allies because Ukraine has to be embraced by the other Ukraine, um, European allies because Ukraine is no different from a Finland or a Baltic state, Lithuania, Estonia and Latvia or Poland or all kinds of other countries who are part of their territory in an old empire, the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. I mean, basically, Ukraine is going through the same process as every other European country has been as well. And, you know, kind of Russia's, you know, basically trying to hold it back. And at one point, Russia even guaranteed Ukraine's sovereignty. In 1994, in the so-called Budapest you know, memorandum, which has proven to be not worth the paper it was written on, because Russia said circumstances changed. Well, we can't really have that, because Russia itself actually sits on some territory that wasn't his its either. Kaliningrad, an exclave of Russia, that's sandwiched between the Baltic countries and Poland, is actually Königsberg, part of East Prussia, part of Germany, which the Soviet Union seized in all of the kind of seizure of territories around the war. So, you know, kind of, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Russia's trying to do that if you're really kind of serious about, you know, kind of European security and stability. And so we're kind of in an old game. We've got to send this message, not acceptable, but we've also got to do it with the Europeans. And we have to stop ourselves from being pulled into this idea that we're engaged in some kind of proxy conflict. And it was that personalization of policy that made that impossible. Because Ukraine, unfortunately, and that's why all of the four of us are here, became part of somebody else's personal agenda, well, some, lots of somebody else's personal agendas, the privatization of policy. And that was kind of what has got us all askew. And so uh, Secretary Blinken and Secretary, Deputy Secretary Newland, sorry, I've kind of muddled up the title there, are all going out there to say, this is now not private. This is back where it was before. This is a national security issue. We support the sovereignty of Ukraine. We hope they're going to be solvent too. And we're working with the rest of our European colleagues to put Ukraine where it should be, which is in the European political, economic and security space, and not as just some kind of appendage to Russia that's getting you know, passed back and forwards. Well said. Colonel Vindman? 
Wow. What, what can I add there? Um, maybe just a couple of thoughts. I think, uh, frankly, in a lot of ways, the uh, Russia-Ukraine uh, relationship is a symptom of a geopolitical uh, environment in which the undemocratic world sees some opportunities uh, in the relative decline of, of the West. And we're talking about like, we're not talking about absolute decline. Uh, the U.S. is still uh, the uh, largest power across the uh, across a, you, the usual measures of political, economic, uh, military, informational. But in terms of relative decline, the the share of power um, gained by uh, the East that uh, in that category, I would include Russia and China. I think there there are potential opportunities for an alternative to a Western liberal order. Now, there are all sorts of professional kind of uh, uh, debates about whether Russia is revisionist, revanchist, same thing for China. Uh, I think uh, from a practical standpoint, it's clear that Russia has in certain ways sought to upend an uh, international order that has not served it. Um, Russia wants, as Fiona described, you know, Yalta in a privileged sphere of influence, wants a veto over international uh, uh, affairs that are contrary to Russian interests and has acted on them. China, on the other hand, uh, has sought to provide an alternative uh, vision to the Western liberal order based on a, a um, authoritarian capitalist model. And I think these are these are sophisticated actors that don't miss the opportunities presented by a relative decline, distraction, uh, decades of US in involvement in uh, what seemingly uh, endless Middle Eastern wars. And uh, in those opportunities, uh, the lack of satisfaction with uh, outcomes using you know, more traditional Russian means of coercion, escalating to hybrid warfare, and then ultimately to military aggression to achieve uh, outcomes, we have a uh, Russia-Ukraine scenario now. Uh, I think there is a fundamental, uh, you know, in terms of an, of an affirmative policy that the United States could take to protect and advance its interests, I think uh, th there needs to be an effort to baseline a relationship and reestablish deterrence. And fundamentally, what that means is that you know Russia ha has believed for some time now that it could act with impunity uh, in its near abroad. It has a largely uh, free hand with regards to interference, what we call malign influence in the U.S. and and uh, uh, amongst the Euro-Atlantic Alliance to sow discord, fracture, you know, uh, move the needle towards a. Uh, a paradigm in which you could uh, then apply coercion in bilateral relationships. And we need to rebaseline this relationship. And I think one of the ways we do this is uh, uh, something that uh, the president's considering, um, you know, short of a full measure approach that's a signaling that there is a lot more pain that could be inflicted, cost imposed, denial of benefits for Russia achieving its, uh, its objectives, um, contrary to uh, U.S. interests and um, and uh, allied interests. I think that's one of the things we could do. Uh, there probably, uh, I would imagine there are uh, significant conversations going on about a uh, much, much higher degree of bilateral cooperation with countries that are the victims of uh, aggressors. And that is probably, you know, with, it, with regards to nurturing the um, anti-corruption uh, democratic reform initiatives that we've uh, all advocated for, uh, security cooperation, um, defense capabilities that could make uh, Ukraine a much, much more difficult target and really change the Russians, uh, Russia's decision-making calculus. We should also keep in mind that Russia is in a very, very difficult situation. In certain ways, maybe an unprecedentedly difficult situation with regards to 
internal uh, um, turmoil and unrest, uh, you know, all the way from the Far East to um, to the core of Russia, uh, with regards to just you know failure to provide services, discontent with the government, uh, Navalny protests over uh, corruption, but also a ring of instability, uh, you know, through Central Asia, the Caucasus. And Russia has limited bandwidth, frankly, in a lot of ways to manage all these challenges. Uh, and and uh, they're, you know, in, in complicating Russia's decision-making calculus, uh, you probably start to affect its willingness to, to uh, employ military aggression to achieve its aims and, and uh, constrain some of its activities in that regard, at least. Great. Thank you. For, for the final question here, I wanted, it's from someone who's currently in the government and submitted a question, is in the civil service. And, and I thought it would be a, a nice question to end on here in the last five minutes. And it's what types of tools or practices that you learned during your career did you use to prepare yourselves to speak truth to power when there was obviously great personal and professional risk? Uh, you know, this is something that is, is you all showed and demonstrated uh, in ways others have not. Uh, and, and so here's someone, you know, inside the government who wants your advice. And we can do this as kind of our, our final round, starting with Ambassador Yovanovitch. I, I think you have to look at the situation, you have to look at yourself, and you have to do what you think is right. Um, and I'm not sure that there are tools to do that. I mean, I certainly thought about um, my own belief system, what my values are, what the values of the United States are, um, you know, thinking about the Constitution. Uh, a lot, and thinking about the oath uh, that I swore, not to an individual, not to the president, not to the secretary of state, um, but um, you know, to the constitution and to uh, the, the American people. And I, I think, you know, when, when people face challenges like this, um, there isn't a roadmap exactly, and you have to do what you think is right. And you have to trust yourself. Ambassador Taylor. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree again with uh, with Ambassador Ivanovich. Um, um, it was it was not that hard. Uh, the, the questioner would do the same thing. I am absolutely sure. And we talked about you know we the people people will do generally generally people will do the right thing as as Masha just indicated. Mm -hmm. And and it, we basically. <laughs> It was, it was not, I say it was not hard because we just told the truth. I mean, it's harder to, to kind of try not to tell the truth. Uh, that, that's a much harder job. And some people tried that and it failed. Um, uh, but but if, you're, if, you, if you know what you know, and you know what you saw, and you know what you heard, and you're asked questions about it, you speak it. Um, and it's, uh, it, you know, uh, and again, the questioner, um, would would do the same um it's uh it, it is is a, it is a part of it's as masha said you, you kind of do what's right you know what's right and you and you kind of act on that fiona yeah and i agree with that as well and of course there wasn't just the four of us who um testified or gave depositions and information there were many more and it wasn't always just the people who appeared on everyone's television screens because there were remember closed door hearings there was a lot of questions and I think for the most part, the vast majority of our colleagues, um, both um, uh, career public servants and political appointees, did actually step up and do their job. Because every, you have to remember as well that every political appointee takes an oath. 
um, but when you're um, sworn in to these positions, um, cabinet officials, um, members of Congress as well, you know, kind of when they're elected, they take an oath. And if you take that oath seriously and you're not just there for a power game or for a paycheck, but you're actually taking seriously what your job is, which is to be part of a team working together for a broader public good, then it just follows naturally from that. I think every single one of the people who took part, as painful um, you know, as it was, were thinking they were doing part of their job. And congressional oversight is an important part of our representational democracy. So, and you know, as Bill is saying, it was harder to figure out ways of not doing this than it was to actually step forward and to do um, what was necessary. And I, again, I think everybody who's listening here would have done exactly the same thing. Colonel? I think uh, I would definitely agree with Bill that it really wasn't that hard. Uh, I think uh, the, the key was in terms of stringing together enough of right decisions about what was right and wrong to kind of manage a, a very complex situation, uh, especially for you know the folks that were in government and, and uh, um, potentially had had something to, to lose at the same time, uh, even foreseeing the consequences. And I think everybody in this group definitely foresaw the consequences. Uh, it, it was still was not hard. Uh, you know, we, uh, none of us were intimidated. We did what we thought was right. We were not going to be pushed around. Uh, and I think that's, uh, you know, that, that probably accounts for a large swaths of, of the uh, professional public servants. Uh, you know, uh, maybe in, the, in, in my experience, um, I don't know if uh, as many of the uh, political appointees in the, in the Trump administration uh, would do the right thing. It just it's just you know that was my my view. Is uh, unfortunately I witnessed that was not the case. Uh, but there was a, a failure of accountability somewhere along the way also because these maybe not in the in the National Security Council or the White House, but in other departments and agencies, these were Senate confirmed individuals, and there was a role that uh, you know the Senate had in making sure that they confirm the right people for those positions. And I hope that, uh, you know, we, we uh, in the future, we're a little bit more effective in determining who's qualified for those positions. But uh, doing the right thing is, 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 is not, not that hard, especially in that kind of particularly meaningful situation where all of our values were, were threatened and we had to defend those, our values. I wanna thank all four of you uh, for your public service, your patriotism, and for joining me in this great conversation. First of all, it was delightful for me to be able to hear a conversation going, hearkening back to my roots of foreign policy and national security. But in particular, having individuals who work in those fields make such passionate and detailed remarks around the importance of public service and how their work is so linked to uh, America's interest and in getting Americans interested in democratic institutions. And their point about democratic institutions, Constitution, Bill of Rights, piece of paper, beautiful buildings, but it takes us. I loved that quote. And it really harkens back to even the other conversations we had, you know, with NASA and um, NIH about public service is not just Washington, D.C., we are outside the beltway, we're everywhere. Every type of expertise, every type of person has a role and they all emphasize that. Ambassador Yovanovitch made an interesting point that I want us to get into a little bit. And that was the question of whether or not Americans should know her name as a former US ambassador to Ukraine. Yeah. 
And to me, like this raises all kinds of issues. You know, of course, as a foreign policy geek, I know lots of ambassadors' names, but I'm not expected to know every single one of them. But it actually harkens back to another question around do Americans understand all that is done for them behind closed doors or behind the scenes and in their name? And how much do they rely on these four tremendous experts who followed Russia-Ukraine policy and European affairs without having to know about these issues themselves? Americans have to put their faith in these individuals that they are able to handle these issues for them without ever talking to them, without seeing them on television necessarily, or without offering them any specific guidance. There's this fascinating relationship there and a one of trust that has to occur in order for that to be successful. Right. It's this awesome responsibility that public servants have. And I, I you know, you're right. I, I Now I'm, I'm feeling how there was, you know, this joke that some of us have, you know, you go home to Thanksgiving and nobody understands what they do. If we're involved with government, they think, we must be a spy in some way. And it's really not funny now that, you know, I'm, I'm really processing this, how much, you know, any of us are unaware of what the government is doing, whether it's overseas, whether it's, you know, getting the streetlights turned back on and how government is responsible for that and working with foreign entities, state, local government, nonprofit. There's just so much integrated into the fabric of our lives that you're right, we're just not aware of. And and there's all of this trust happening, whether we know it or not. The word trust to me is fascinating because trust can be used in the context of his phrase saying, trust us, as in, trust me, I don't need to tell you the details, you can just trust me to execute it. But trust should also be around empathy and shared knowledge and shared understanding and shared interests. And that's something that I think is not always as apparent as it should be and as articulated as it should be in setting up that relationship between the, the public servants like these incredible individuals on that were part of this panel and the American people. And I think they gave a lot of good ideas on how to help build that up. Um, Colonel Vinman talked a bit about some sort of mandatory public service in some way, which I know have been explored in some areas. Others talked about, I think it was a, a Dr. Hill talked about the idea of an ambassador to America, which mm-hmm. sounds silly in saying it, but having somebody who is talking more clearly about what is the role of government for Americans and helping understand you know, what is the role that the State Department does every day, the Department of Transportation does every day, and others, to build back that relationship of trust so it's not just one of trust us and be silent, but, but trust us and like let's continue the exchange. And understanding really with the career civil servants, that expertise that resides there, because who, you know, who do we know about? It's usually those who are elected. And I love the point about, you know, do you want to elect your airplane pilot or your firefighter? You know, they shouldn't be deputized on the tarmac. You know, these are people who train for a long time to do this. And this is true of a lot of the public servants that we have. And yeah, I just I, it's not something that's front and center for everyone as to how this whole system actually works. And this is the continuity of government are these career civil servants. Absolutely. Transitions are facilitated and can happen peacefully and effectively and without huge blips between president to president because of men and women like Alexander Vindman and Marie Ivanovich and others who build up this expertise over the course of their lifetimes and are, are happy to do it behind closed doors and behind the scenes. I think that something that is incumbent upon this podcast and in others is helping bring some of that to light to show that they do this work behind the scenes, but it's important that you understand what is done for 
you, whether you live in Washington, D.C., where you live in Texas or live in Oregon, not necessarily to understand the details of Ukraine policy per se, but to move beyond those pretty documents and pretty buildings that you talked about. See that like these are the institutions that are fundamental to those documents and pretty buildings operating and functioning over time. And they kept reinforcing everyone has a part to play across generations, across geography, and it just comes in so many different forms. And college degree not required for every job. You know, all all backgrounds, all geographies, this, this is all relevant for the civil service. And I just think that's so important. And again, as I've said earlier in other um, of our discussions, so much that I wish I knew growing up where maybe I would have made certain career choices knowing what was possible in federal government. Well, we have a host of other amazing civil servants to be part of this podcast and upcoming episodes, but these were four incredible individuals to be part of the story here. So thanks so much for listening. Um, and Rachel, as always, delightful to have a conversation with you. Lauren, thank you. So that's our show. Thanks so much for listening. Profiles in Public Service was created by the Partnership for Public Service. Our researcher and writer is Emma Jones. Our script supervisor is Barry Goldberg. And our executive producer is Jordan Lapierre. Profiles in Public Service is produced by District Productive. I'm Lauren DeYoung-Shulman. And I'm Rachel Klein-Kircher. See you next time.